Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 16. I confess, uh, this past week, uh, given, the, given the new cycle surrounding bathrooms, I confess I was, I, I considered, I considered going all the way back and starting again in Romans 1. I really did, especially verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be, to be done. I considered it, I really did folks, uh, but I'm not going to. But um, I do want to give you a little pep talk, just briefly, a little pep talk. I, uh, I found myself giving myself a couple of times this week and just put some, I just put some thoughts out there that I pray will be profitable and the Spirit of God will, will bless, to, bless them to you. So I, I just found myself admonishing myself this past week in a number of ways. Uh, firstly, I, I, I had to tell myself a couple of times, Stephen, settle down, settle down. I could actually hear my mother's voice in the back of my head, Stephen, settle down, <laughs> settle down. Um, is there a place for anger? Yes, and a disappointment, certainly. But um, just take a deep breath, take a deep breath, Stephen. I, I had to say that a few times. As a matter of fact, I had to say that to one or two of you uh, this past week. Uh, second thing I found myself saying is this, grieve, grieve. Uh, not so much, but yes, because of the way the country is going, but, but not so much for that, but just how destructive sin is. And weep for these people. I mean, weep for them. The prison cell and the darkness that is the depravity of the human heart. And uh, let us make sure we are weeping for sinners outside of Christ. And um, let us make sure we are seeking with every fiber of our being their salvation through the proclamation of the gospel. I also said to myself, uh, protest. I think this is a case. Uh, where protest is perfectly acceptable and called for. Uh, whatever vehicle you have to protest, protest, certainly. Um, if you're looking for a voice that gives, I think, clear, articulate, biblical uh, uh, articulation when it comes to these sorts of issues, I, I point you to, to Russell Moore, M-O-O-R-E. I know Donald Trump tweeted about him quite negatively this past week, but I don't put a lot of stock in his opinion. I recommend to you Russell Moore. And I think it's russellmoore.com. He is the, um, the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention. If you just want clarity, biblical clarity, when it comes to these issues and someone who is protesting, he is out there protesting, then I recommend that to you. And uh, pray the Lord will, will, bless, will bless it to you as well. Another thing I found myself, you know, as part of this pep talk was, uh, Stephen, watch yourself. Watch yourself. And what I mean by that is the following. Stephen, 
make sure you are at least as angry about your own sin as you are about others' sin. Okay, maybe one or two of you need to hear that. Make sure you're at least as angry about your sin as you are about others' sin. Because if we're not, we simply become hypocritical, judgmental, and downright ornery, right? Uh, we need to remember who we are in God's sight and what it means to be saved by, by sovereign grace. Fifthly, and Ike alluded to this in his prayer, uh, we need to pray. We need to pray. We can go to 1 Timothy 2, where Paul exhorts us to pray for those in authority over us. How do we pray? Uh, yeah, sometimes I don't, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> How do we pray? I'm praying for our governor right now. I haven't prayed for him enough. Our governor. I think he's actually a fairly sensible man. And I'm praying he's prepared to lose an election over this next time it comes around. I'm praying he's prepared to lose all his political collateral and if not sacrifice his political career on this issue. It is that big. And so I'm praying for that man. That uh, the Lord, I don't know how, but in some way, uh, some way uses him. And sixthly, um, Stephen, be strengthened. Be strengthened. And that's, what, that's the, the last little uh, part of my pep talk to you this day. Be strengthened. Um, be established. There's a great word. And it brings us right back to where I want us to focus this day, Romans chapter 16. And I pray that even now you'll see how the text does speak into what I have just alluded to. And this call for spiritual strength and that you're able to apply it to, yes, our present context domestically and that we're able to apply it to ourselves individually. Spiritual strength, we need it. We need it given what I've just spoken of. Uh, we need it when the dreaded test comes back negative from the doctor, Right? We need it when it's easier to remain silent than speak up. We need it when a friend no longer returns our calls or responds to our email. We need it when temptation knocks upon the door of our hearts. When disobedience seems so harmless and so enticing. We need it when we have been wronged or maligned or neglected. We need it when a childhood dream lies shattered on the floor. We need it when a secret trip into the inner world of fantasy is so alluring. We need it when the fire consumes all of our earthly possessions. When a craving for ease and comfort and security eclipses everything else in life. We need it when following the crowd is so much easier than standing out. We need it when Uncle Tony doesn't want to speak to us anymore because we're a Christian. We need it when a loved one completely derails. And we need it when death comes calling. Spiritual strength. And Paul speaks to it. In Romans chapter 16, follow along as I begin reading. In verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker greets you. So do Lucius 
and Jason and Sosapater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Did you catch the phrase early on in verse 25? Now to him who is able to strengthen you. Spiritual strength. That is what I want us to take up this Lord's Day. But before we do, it's going to be a little tedious. I know it's a terrible intro. It's going to be a little tedious. But we need to remove a couple of potential stumbling blocks. There are a couple of potential stumbling blocks, things that you might just kind of be looking at sideways in this text. The first is this. Let me, let me just get these out of, the, out of the way, and then we'll be right back to verse 25, this idea of spiritual strength. The first potential stumbling block is this, verse 22. Who's Tertius? Who wrote this letter? Well, that, that's a little confusing because I've been thinking... Ever since chapter 1, I mean, the cake's all over my face. I've been thinking ever since chapter 1, verse 1, Paul wrote this letter. And now all of a sudden I discover it's Tertius who wrote this letter. How do we resolve that? Very simple. Uh, Paul is the author. He's dictating. Tertius is what we call a scribe. He's a secretary. Uh, how do we know this? We know it in many ways. Let me just give you a few examples. The first is this. To the Corinthians, his first letter, Paul ends the letter as follows. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. That's how he ends his first epistle to the Corinthians. His epistle to the Colossians, he ends as follows. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And his epistle, second epistle to the Thessalonians, you're going to think I'm starting to sound like a broken record. How did he end it? As follows, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Three times, the statement implies what? I didn't write the rest of the letter. Somebody else is writing. The scribe is writing. But I've grabbed the pen out of his hand, and now I've written in big letters my personal greeting at the end of it. And so we know that's Paul's practice. He dictates while a scribe actually writes the words, puts the words to paper, and here Tertius himself gives a greeting. So that's how we resolve stumbling block number two. Stumbling block number, number one. Stumbling block number two is a little more complicated. All right, are you ready? Find verse 23. Do you see the number? Right before the word Gaius? Okay, now let your eyes skim over the words. Verse 23. Okay, what am I looking for? What comes after 23? 24. But what comes next in the ESV? 25. If you bought your Bible here in the resource center, do not go asking Christian for your money back. You're not getting it. Don't think that somehow you've been gypped or whatever. No, no, no. Well, but why isn't this verse here? Uh, where, is, where did verse 24 go? 
You'll find it in the King James Version. You don't obviously find it in the ESV. You won't find it in the NIV. You'll find it in the New American, but it'll be in parentheses. Well, now you've got my attention. Why, why, why? Well, what is it? What does it say? It is, it, is exact, it is the exact same statement we find at the end of verse 20. That benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You can see that statement right at the end of verse 20? That's verse 24, the missing verse. It's exactly the same, word for word. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So why isn't it in the ESV? Well, here's what we need to get. When it comes to our Bibles, we're working off of manuscripts, right? And there are thousands, over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament alone that date all the way back to the second century. And so when we're making a translation, we get all these manuscripts together, and when we get to them together, what do we discover? Don't be shocked by this. We discover copyist errors, that those who copied it did actually make mistakes. Uh, what do I mean by mistakes? I mean, sometimes they'll, they'll write one word twice, or they'll omit a word, or they'll spell something wrong, or even a phrase like this is in one place, but then it's in another place, and we call these copyist errors. What I want you to understand is this, that one one thousandth, so that would be 0.001% of all these copyist errors is of any substantive significance. That are just simply spelling mistakes or a word order is different or something like that. And so we have this phrase that is in some of those manuscripts. The exact same phrase at the end of verse 20 is repeated at the end of verse 23 and constitutes verse 24. The King James Version decided to include it. These other translations have gone back to the oldest manuscripts and have acknowledged it's not there because that's the basic rule. What you do is you go to the oldest manuscripts and you uh, make them your starting point and work from there. And so the phrase... Was it there and then deleted? Was it not there and then added? The second of the two is most likely, but it makes no difference at all. The statement is biblical. We have it there at the end of verse 20. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so that's all I want to assure you of, that when it comes to these copyist errors, mistakes, 0.001% are of some sort of substantive significance. In other words, these mistakes do not alter or change at all the theology, the doctrine that we find in the New Testament, all right? So when your nephew, who has finished his first year at some liberty, you know, liberal university, comes over and informs you, announces to you, the Bible is full of mistakes, all right, don't start laughing. Don't say talk to the hand or anything like that. You can simply ask him very cordially, very kindly, please list those mistakes and demonstrate to me how they alter the doctrine and the theology of the New Testament, all right? But they are there. We acknowledge them. Why? Because all Scripture is inspired. What do we mean by that? We mean the original autographs were inspired. What we have are manuscripts, thousands and thousands of them over the centuries, going way back. And what is amazing isn't that there are some copyist errors in these manuscripts. What is amazing is how much they agree. What is amazing is that there are only some copyist errors in, the, in these manuscripts. And the, the, the agreement and the uniformity testify to God's preservation of his holy word. So there's the second stumbling block. Out of the way, I hope and pray, 
We come to where I want us to land this morning, the doxology, beginning in verse 25. Notice how Paul begins, 25th verse, now to him, that is God, who is able to strengthen you. Freeze it right there. Go all the way down to verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. And you notice at the end of verse 26, start of verse 27, there's a hyphen to indicate that the following thought is picking up on a thought Paul has declared earlier. And so in actual fact, the doxology is this statement. Now to him who is able, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. That's the doxology. Very similar to the first doxology we have in this book back in chapter 11, verse 36. I'm gonna keep the actual doxology a doxa, glory, ology, speaking. So speaking forth God's glory, blessing God, speaking well of Him, ascribing to Him all honor and glory and praise. We're going to keep that for next Sunday. And it will be a very fitting conclusion to our series, our study of the book of Romans. What I want us to do today is look at that intervening stuff in this doxology, where he expands on exactly how God is able to strengthen us. He says, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Four questions. Are you ready? Very straightforward questions. Here we go. Number one, what does it mean to strengthen? Yeah, I, I was hearing you earlier. When temptation knocks upon the door of my heart, yeah, I've been wronged, I've been maligned, I've been neglected, oh, the need for spiritual strength. I am dealing with loss, you can't even imagine where am I going to find the spiritual strength. Oh, the temptation, the inner temptation, the enticing thoughts, this, that, the next thing. How, 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 can, I, how can I attain to this spiritual strength to resist it all? When I look at what's going on around us, and again, what's been in the news this past week, I, I feel my knees just buckling. Where is the spirit? strength. You got it. Four questions. What does it mean to strengthen? That's the place to begin, to strengthen. I'm not a huge fan of it. I really like the way the New American has translated this, to establish, to establish. I think it better conveys the significance of the original, to fix. Sterizo is the verb, to fix, to set, to establish, to make fast. The verb, in a word, in summary, conveys immovability. That's it. Immovability. Ten years ago, almost to the day, uh, Allison and I purchased a home that was a little bit of a fixer-upper. We could have used Chip and Joanne, believe you me. It was a real fixer-upper. And uh, the front of this house, facing this house, there was this concrete slab on the way in, which was the front deck, and I had this brainiac moment and thought I was going to haul that thing out of there. It just would not budge. I went to speak to the former homeowner, said, what's the story of that front step outside? Well, yeah, that's poured concrete, poured it myself, and uh, it rests on like pillars that are four feet down, deep. That thing's not going anywhere. Yeah, you figure, couldn't even budge the thing. So I was left with only one alternative. What was it? 
wood over top. And so that concrete step is still there underneath for the next homeowner who wants to deal with it at some point in the future. My point was this, the thing was immovable. That's the idea of the verb. Something that is fixed in place. Something that is set. It's used in that sense a couple of occasions in the gospel accounts. I'm thinking when we go back to Luke, Luke's gospel account, and that occasion, you remember the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus, and they both die. It's a parable, remember that. And, and so what happens? Lazarus, the poor man, goes to Abraham's side, and the rich man, he goes to a place of torment, and, uh, and there is this dialogue between Abraham and this rich man who's in torment, and Abraham says to him, there is fixed between you and me a great chasm. It's the same word. Something that is fixed in place. You're not going to move it. This isn't going anywhere. It is completely beyond your power, capability, ability to move it. And so that's the idea here, immovability. Something that is established. You know, I think it conveys in some way determination. Sanctified stubbornness. I think it's a good way. Sanctified stubbornness. Determination. And is even used of the Lord Jesus in that sense. Again, back in Luke's gospel account. Uh, him knowing what was going to transpire at uh, Calvary's cross. Knowing that the hour was drawing near. What did he do? He fixed his face. Toward Jerusalem. It's the same word. It's the same verb. To set, to fix an immovable object. You getting the idea now? Now to him who is able to strengthen. Yes, strengthen. I'm not against it. But immovability. Something that isn't going anywhere. Question number two is this. Who strengthens us? Because, you know, I don't feel anything like that. I'm very movable. A little gust of wind and away I go. A little problem in life and poof, I'm off, I'm up, I'm down, I'm here, I'm there. Circumstances, I'm at the prey of whatever's going on around me. Here I am, there I go. That's not me. Where does this kind of strength come from? Now to him who is able to strengthen, who is powerful to strengthen. Listen to these texts. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Listen to this one, Ephesians 3, 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. 2 Timothy 1, 12. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Are you getting the idea? In case you aren't, Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Jude, verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Oh, Scripture testifies to it from cover to cover, beginning to end. God is able. I love the book of Job for many reasons. 
I love the book of Job in particular because of those depictions of God, Almighty God. The book of Job, God hangs the earth on nothing. Oh, what kind of a word picture is that? He hangs the earth, the world, on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds. He covers the face of the full moon. He has ascribed, inscribed the boundary between light and darkness. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. He is able. Praise God, because I most certainly am not. Immovability, this isn't coming from within. This isn't me pulling myself up by my bootstraps. This isn't simply putting my best foot forward. This isn't simply, look, immerse yourself in positive thinking, and if you think positive thoughts, life will get better. No, this isn't about me. Yes, it is me, the one who is immovable. But who is it that makes me like that? Where does this strength come from? It comes from the one alone who is able. Third question is this. Well, I want to know how God does this. How does he pull this off? What means, this is the third question, does God use to strengthen us? It's right there in the text. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, what's the next word? According, so I know what? Well, he's about to go off now and explain to me how this actually happens. So how, how does God, by his almighty power, make me established, immovable? He does so according to something, what? To my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And so I now know, beyond any shadow of a doubt, I now know how God establishes me. There is only one means. It is through the gospel. There's an echo here, you know. In some ways, Paul, he, he, I mean, he's brilliant. He's inspired by the Spirit. What else could we expect? He comes full circle. He, 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 I, th I think he's just bringing back in again Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not only is this gospel, he's now saying, not only is this gospel the power of God to save us, this gospel is the power of God to strengthen us. It's what he's been doing in this book. Again, he said it right back in chapter 1. He told them, you know, I want to visit you. I want to visit you so that I can impart some spiritual gift to you that you might be strengthened is the same word we have here now in chapter 16. I want to get with you and I want to use my spiritual gift of preaching, the proclamation of the gospel. I want to be used of the Spirit of God among you there in the church at Rome 
And I pray that the Spirit of God will use it then and bless it in order to strengthen you. And then what he has given in this book is a preview of that gospel. And he has explained it and he has applied it. And now he's bringing it all to a conclusion and saying, look, I hope you understand what, what I have been doing. My desire to see you strengthened. My desire to see you established. My, my, my prayer to see you immovable in your faith. Everything I have said to this point has been contributing to that end. Now to him who is able to make it happen. To this God who is able to bring about, to this God who is able to make you something that you most certainly are not, here's how he's going to do it according to this gospel I've been proclaiming. And the preaching of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to describe this gospel. He says, this gospel was concealed according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. You know, it's there in the Old Testament, but it isn't that clear. And then he goes on to say in verse 26 that this gospel is now revealed, but it has now been disclosed. How? Through the prophetic writings. The Old Testament scriptures have suddenly come to life. We understand with the coming of the Lord Jesus and the birth of the church what scripture is talking about. And then he goes on to say that this gospel is proclaimed. It is now being made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. It's going forth. And then he says this gospel is obeyed to bring about the obedience of faith. And so I want you to understand as I wrap this thing up, that this all has one end in view. Yes, this gospel is the power of God to save you. And yes, this gospel is the power of God to strengthen you. Oh, never lose sight of the gospel. When you are immersed in the gospel, when you live, bathe yourself, live, eat, drink, sleep, think the gospel. God uses the preaching of Jesus Christ the gospel itself, in our context, the content of this epistle to make us immovable in the faith. My final question is this. I want some specifics. How exactly does this work? How exactly is this going to work? And I've meditated upon this and reflected upon it in my own life. And I'm going to give you, boys, not even the tip of the iceberg. I'm going to give you the little chip of ice off the tip of the iceberg here as to how exactly this works. Let me suggest four ways in which this comes together. As we hear the preaching of the gospel, as we really get Paul's epistle to the Romans, as the light goes on, the penny drops, the elevator goes all the way up, whatever expression you want to use, what happens? Oh, this gospel remedies our greatest ailment. It remedies our greatest ailment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That was my biggest problem. I, I, I can't imagine, some of you can, a fair number of you can. I can't imagine what it was like for you. Uh, those of you who have struggled with cancer and uh, you've gone through the treatments, some of them, some of them light, reasonable, manageable, in some cases, downright horrific in many ways. And then to arrive at that day when you hear a doctor say what? It's in remission. Or even better, I can't find it. It's gone. No trace of it left. You go back six months later, you go back a year later, you go back two years later, the doctor says, I don't want to see you anymore. It's gone. There's no need for us to keep meeting like this. Oh, the relief. I can't imagine Oh, the relief 
Well, I can't imagine because that's me and my sin. That's my sin-riddled life, sin-riddled heart and mind. That's me recognizing my awful predicament before a holy God and understanding I'm condemned in the sight of God. Oh, but the gospel remedies it all. The gospel clears it all up. The gospel points me to a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has borne the penalty for my sin in his body upon Calvary's cross. And the gospel comes to me and the invitation comes to me. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Oh, that is strength. Oh, that is strength. The gospel strengthens me because it remedies my greatest ailment. Let me suggest you a second way. The gospel strengthens me because it satisfies my greatest longing. You think of what we read in Romans 8, 16. The spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I am a child of God. Where do we begin with that? You'll have to go back to those sermons on Romans 8 to discover. Let me at least say this. Our peace with God as children, as Christians, as the children of God, our peace with God is such that he loves us as if we had never ever been the object of his wrath. Oh, and that satisfies a longing deep within. A longing deep within. It was Augustine, one of the church fathers, used to speak of his spiritual restlessness. We are restless until what? We return to our center and rest, the Lord God Almighty. We are image bearers, aren't we? Image bearers, created in the image of God. That image of God, yes, serving many functions and purposes, but one overarching purpose, simply this, the means by which we fellowship with our Creator. And the image distorted, twisted by the advent of sin and the entrance of death into the world. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's all restored. And that great promise is fulfilled. I will be God to them. And they will be my children. Oh, I find such spiritual strength in that truth. Here's the third way. The gospel strengthens me because it imparts hope for eternity. For eternity. Verse 23 of Romans 8, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Oh, just this realization. I don't know how people live. I do not know how unbelievers live. I just don't. I don't. To go through life without any sense of where have I come from? What's this all about? And where I'm going? And to seek to infuse meaning into the midst, therefore, of meaninglessness. Oh, no, this realization that there is a historical trajectory and there is a great plan of redemption, an expression of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the realization that I've been made part of this plan of redemption. And it is all hurling forward at neck break speed. This coming day of consummation. A new heavens, a new earth, sin gone, death gone. All that opposes God, gone. And we will rest in the one who will be our eternal delight. Oh, the hope that infuses into the present. The gospel. And thereby the strength it imparts to me. 
Here's the fourth and final way I want to suggest this morning. The gospel strengthens me because it assures me that God is for me. Deus pro nobis, God for us. Rallying cry for many of the reformers, God for us. They didn't invent it. It was lifted out of Romans 8.39. If God is for us, who can be against us? I was reading, dabbling a little bit in George Swinnick, one of my favorite authors recently, and picking up a book I've read many times and kind of fingering through it and reading little snippets here and there. And he makes a following statement that just caused me to close the book and just think on it for a while. He writes, God is like a sphere whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. Think on that one. It's a brain teaser. God is like a sphere whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. The great I am. The one without beginning, without end, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is above and beyond the succession of time, the one who is not limited by time or space, the one who, who dwells in eternal delight and blessedness. He is my God, and He is for me. He has my best interest as defined by Him, ever before Him, ever in view. And the circumstances of life, I have this great assurance, contribute to the realization of those plans that he has reserved for me. Oh, spiritual strength. You want it? You're only going to find it in one place, my friend. You're only going to find it in one place. It's the gospel. It's Paul's epistle to the Romans. It's what he's been saying. This is where we must live. And when we appropriate this gospel, it becomes what by the Holy Spirit? It becomes dunamis, dynamite, God's power to save us. And it becomes his power to strengthen us in the way. Oh, John Calvin understood this so well. I was doing a little reading on John Calvin again this past week as well. What a guy in so many ways. <laughs> Listen to this if you can bear it. He suffered from kidney stones for which his doctor prescribed horseback riding. Interesting. <laughs> he suffered from hemorrhoids, which would have made the horseback riding unbearable. He suffered from asthma. He suffered from gout. He suffered from severe indigestion. It was so bad that he could only eat one meal per day. He suffered from tuberculosis. On one occasion, he spit up so much blood that he had to spend the next eight months in bed. He suffered from debilitating migraines. Oftentimes, the church elders carried him in a chair from his bed to the pulpit so that he could preach. Calvin's wife suffered numerous miscarriages. Two children were stillborn. One child died in infancy within weeks of being born. Calvin lost innumerable friends to martyrdom. You want to talk about spiritual strength? There's a man who knew spiritual strength because there's a man who knew the gospel. And written over it all, all these experiences of life and all the suffering, John Calvin could write these words, I am under God's hand. 
what more do I need? I am under God's hand. Oh, the gospel strengthens us because it remedies our greatest need. It satisfies our greatest longing. It imparts hope, unassailable hope for eternity. And it assures us that God is for us. Our Heavenly Father, we pray now your blessing upon what has been proclaimed. Uh, we pray the working of your Spirit among us, in us, through us. Uh, we pray that we who at times are, are slow to understand and certainly slow to apply, that you would stir us on by your Spirit to take what has been uh, declared this day and to appropriate it, that is, make it our own. Oh, give us an exalted vision of the Lord Jesus. Help to fix our eyes upon him. May we see him as your beloved one, the one in whom you delight. And may we recognize our firm, unshakable, immovable standing in him. And with this, may we be encouraged. We ask it in Christ's matchless name. Amen.